Welcome to Tech Talks, your technology podcast publishing every Monday and Thursday with scary Dave Savage and petrifying Jack Pierce. <laughs> Coming up on today's show, we've got Tessa Clark. She is the co-founder of Olio. Uh, they are an app uh, tackling the food waste problem. And then we're going to have a section on news where we're going to be talking about, amongst other things, the tech tax. Um, because, of course, it was the budget announcement on Monday this week. Hey, Jack. Hello. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween, yeah. It was yesterday. I assume yep. that you... Do you live in an area with lots of kids likely to not be Loads of kids, but we're in... Um... We're behind two security doors that you have to buzz through to get to our flats. We're in a block of flats, oh. so we don't get much foot traffic in. Block of flats probably less likely to have lots of kids. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not so many kids, but lots of teenagers smoking or not. I don't know, doing those um, nos canisters everywhere. If that counts. Right. So every day. What's a, what's a lovely area? You, you walk. You walk down the down the stairs out into the sort of outside foyer a bit, and it's just covered in those aluminium bottles everywhere. <laughs> Scumbags! Oh, lovely. Yeah. I'd say our, our road is full of children. I was going to say, yeah, you're... you're oh, uh, we have to buy a lot of sweets. Do you? Halloween is expensive, man. Don't be that guy that hands out fruit instead. <laughs> There's always someone in one village that goes, instead of the I, fruit, have an orange. Well, what, what I'd quite Sweet. like to do is, is, uh, is dress up. Yeah. I've got a few spots of it, so I wouldn't need to add warts, but add, add, add a black hood. Yeah. And then when they knock... Hold oh. out a, bl- a red apple. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Scare the yeah. bejesus out of them. What anyway. scared you most as a child? Uh, genuinely? Yeah. Two things. Uh, Wizard of Oz. Yes. Oh, I was no, that, utterly... The flying monkeys, right? No, the oh, Wicked Witch. Oh, okay. I was right. petrified of the witch. Yeah. Uh, and Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> Look at you now. <laughs> hey. I love Star Trek, but I used to hide behind a sofa asking my sister if there were aliens on, t- on yeah. telly. I remember having a really scary moment at one of the Star Trek films and freaking out about that. And The Matrix as well freaked me out as a kid. But my, my biggest scare as a kid, and it was even worse because it came true, like awfully so, I was always scared of white vans. Like really weird, like you can't, there's no windows in them. Anyone could jump out and drag you in. And then I was about no, eight or nine. Sorry to get a bit somber, but... And then, it's, it's probably more logical than being scared of aliens maybe, or wicked witches. Maybe, but then yeah. we had that horrible Siam incident. And then there's uh, adverts all over the TV, like beware of what, oh, it was, it was my worst nightmare. Fair enough. Look, this, this interview is very well-timed. Yes, yeah, so, so you said, Jack, guess why it's well-timed? And I've gone, oh, I don't know. Well... 1.5 billion pumpkins a year are produced in the US. What do we do with the vast majority of pumpkins? Well, some people aren't making soup out of it, Dave. We throw them away. There you go. We throw them away. And yeah. today's interview with Tessa is all about the fact that we are wasting a huge amount of food. A third of the food produced in the world globally is thrown away. That's crazy. So, unfortunately, this is probably a day late because you've probably carved out your pumpkins and thrown everything away. But you yeah. should think at Halloween... All of that waste from pumpkins, guys. Yeah. Soups, pies, curries, stews. Coffee, right? You can, you can, there's a, a pumpkin spice latte, so ground it up into a... That might be a lot of effort. It might be, but it depends how much you love your pumpkin spice. But use your pumpkins if you've got any left. Don't yeah. throw it away. Maybe get it on Olio, the app, and you'll find out why, because here is our interview with Tessa. Just going to say, don't, don't pumpkins definitely, but if you've got any leftover sweets, don't throw them away. Call me up. Okay, I'll come out. Here's Tessa. So Tessa, 
thank you for coming on to the show and spending a few minutes talking to us. My pleasure. Uh, you are the so uh, sorry. You are the co-founder, rather, and CEO of Olio. Yeah. Um, now I have seen Olio a little bit in the press, but if someone hasn't seen you and who your business is, who are you? So we are an app that's tackling the problem of food waste, specifically in the home and local community. Mm -hmm. So essentially we connect users, uh, which can be individuals like you or I, or local businesses who have surplus food with people living nearby who would like it. Mm -hmm. So let's take some real use cases. Um, so the household use case, you might be going on a diet, moving house, going on holiday, overcated for a party, keen gardener, unwanted gifts, whatever the reason. You take a photograph of that food, you add it to the Olio app. Neighbours who live nearby get an alert, letting them know that something new has been listed. They can then browse the listings, request what they want, and arrange the pickup via private messaging. And the pickup takes place neighbour to neighbour um, mm. on the doorstep, and it takes place very quickly. So half of all food listings are requested in less than two hours. Now, just thinking very quickly, uh, when I was growing up my family used to regularly holiday in a, in a village in France in fact we've got a family home there that's been there for 25 years and our neighbours would regularly bring round excess vegetables and whatever else that they yeah. grow and that would kind of make sense in the community but I, I would imagine in modern Britain where people maybe don't know their neighbours there might be some stigma about taking used food from, from someone else's house is, is that been the case or is actually have you been surprised by how welcoming people are? Well, yeah, so actually it's, it's quite the opposite because we do have this bizarre scenario where we have keen gardeners or people who have allotments or they have an apple tree in their garden mm -hmm. who are awash. So we're speaking now in September. It is um, apple season. Mm -hmm. And there's only so many apples that one person or family can eat. And yet their neighbours would love to have organic, homegrown apples fresh from the tree. Um, and that's what Olia does. It, it connects up those two people to, to share that. And as... We move through the seasons. We've just come out of marrow and courgette season. Yep. So uh, I've learned a lot about <laughs> seasonal produce. We've seen what, what comes onto the app to be shared. Um, what was the genesis behind it? Because you had a corporate career before this. So I did, yeah. where, where did this kind of idea come from? And then yeah, So I was moving country three and a half years ago, moving back to the UK. And on moving day, the removal men said I had to throw away uh, all of our food. I was... Uh, brought up on a farm and so I know from first-hand experience just how much hard work goes into producing the food that we all eat every day so much to the removal men's irritation I sort of stopped packing and set out onto the streets to try and find someone to share my food with I failed and thought about knocking on all my neighbors doors and just realized that that was going to be very inefficient and even if did someone did answer the door it's probably going to be extremely socially awkward and I'd worked in the digital world for 10 or 15 years at that point and I knew there was an app for absolutely everything and I could not believe it when uh, I realised that there was no app to share food which is our, our most precious resource. It's the one thing um, that all of us uh, have in, sort of in our daily lives. And, and your co-founder Sasha, was that someone that you knew prior to starting this business or is that some, some, somebody that you've discovered in the process of it? Yeah, so Sasha and I uh, met almost 15 years ago now mm -hmm. at Stanford Business School doing our MBAs together and we both moved back to London after that experience and were very, very close friends. And her, uh, so the clue is in her surname, so her surname is uh, Celestial One. Uh, her parents were... Um, were hippie entrepreneurs in the Midwest, uh, in the US, and like me, she sort of uh, chose a very corporate career path. I think the way to rebel against hippie parents is to go and become an investment banker, which is what Sasha did. Um, 
And yeah, so when I pitched the idea of Olio and, and a food sharing app that could be global and scalable and, and high impact, uh, it was something that she immediately wanted to do with me. Just very quickly on that point, validating a co-founder can be quite hard for for, for someone in the tech business. And yeah. if you think of Entrepreneur First and so on, whole, whole kind of incubators have sprung up around the idea of helping people yeah. find the right co-founder. Has, has it been easier having someone who's been a friend for so long or has that thrown up unexpected challenges? I genuinely think so. Each case is very, very different. Mm -hmm. In our, talking from our personal experience, I really think that one of the greatest strengths of Olio as a business is mine and Sasha's relationship. Um, we have an incredible relationship and we complement each other extremely well. So from day one, we were very careful to decide our roles and responsibilities and which functions um, we would both be responsible for. And I think that's extremely helpful. I couldn't have done this journey without her. Um, and uh, I think sort of vice versa. It's definitely made it easier. To, so two heads are better than one. And But... It is like a, a marriage, and so it should be taken as seriously and with as much consideration um, mm. as, as going into a marriage. Now, before we hit record, I quizzed you about your background at Cambridge. You studied social and political sciences. Kind of, I looked at this, it could be phrased as possibly a social enterprise, and I then started talking about food banks, and you said we're not a charity, and you made mm. that very point very strongly. Yeah. Why is that? Because Sasha and I believe very strongly in the power of business to do good. Um, and it might sound like a slightly strange thing to be saying that at the moment in you know, 2018 where, where tech's getting absolute hammering. <laughs> um, but we believe that for too long we've been given two options. One, either you do good, and in which case you must be a charity, or you want to grow and scale um, and in that case, you must must be a business. And the assumption is almost that if you're a business, then then you're not going to do uh, good. And we believe very firmly in that there is a third path, and that that will, by definition, have to be the path of the future, which is profit with purpose. Um, and we have, I guess, the social mission that a charity has, but we have combined that with the ambition that many businesses have, which is to take that social mission and that impact um, to scale because we are tackling what, at the end of the day, is one of the largest problems facing humanity today, and it is a global problem. Mm. Now, you've mentioned scale a couple of times, and there you do phrase it as a global problem. And uh, I, don't know, I don't know whether this is as up-to-date as it could be, your LinkedIn profile mentions 200,000 users. Is that roughly right now, or has it grown a bit more? Uh, it's grown a lot more. Um, Fine. So I, I need to update my LinkedIn profile. There um, we go. As of today, we're on 625,000 So it obviously is users. a scalable business. There you go. There's yeah. proof. Um, but how, what do you put that down to? Because it's all very well you going, hey, I'm moving, I want to give my food away, let's see if there's an app. Yeah. One person kind of having that idea, there's something entirely different to getting hundreds yeah. of thousands of people to buy into something. Yes, I, I think that one of the uh, most effective things that we've done to enable us to scale has we recognised very, very early on that we had close to zero resources. It was mm. just Sasha and I. And we therefore had to sort of beg, borrow and steal the time, energy and enthusiasm of others. And we quickly realised that because we have a mission, so many people believe like us that food should be eaten, not thrown away. 
um, that it would be a really good thing for us to do to empower others to spread the word about Olio on our behalf in their local community. Right. And um, I have worked for some businesses that have been extremely protective of their brand, um, and, and for good reason, and I completely understand why that is. But actually, we took the opposite approach, which was we are going to put our brand and our collateral and our materials out there, and we're going to and our know-how, and we're going to empower others to uh, run with it. So, making that very real for you, as of today, we have twenty-two thousand volunteers, and they uh, go on a volunteering journey. So, the vast majority are what we call ambassadors. So, they are people who are spreading the word about Olio in their local community, mm. and we equip them with posters, letters, flyers, all the way through to speaking events, events and press releases and stuff like that, so that they can get OEO kickstarted in their local community near them. And then the second type of volunteers are food waste heroes, and they collect unsold food from local retailers. They take it home, add it to the app, and that food then gets requested and redistributed to the local community. And that volunteering platform that we have built has been absolutely essential in terms of helping us to scale and it's very authentic yeah i have to say i do love the fact that it's a digital platform that's in the community with posters and letters and flyers because <laughs> yes, it's kind of counterintuitive you would imagine because you would think that something like instagram would be tailor-made but i suppose yeah. it wouldn't have quite the same authenticity uh, exactly i think that one of the biggest mistakes that i see early stage founders make is to think that they can build a digital business from behind their screen. Mm -hmm. And what we have discovered is that it is, some of the just old school guerrilla marketing is incredibly effective and it's extremely cost effective. I suppose fewer people are doing it, so. Well, fewer people are doing it. And also um, when you have almost zero marketing budget, then flyers and posters um, are a much more cost effective way to go than Facebook or Instagram ads, mm. where you're competing with everybody else. So as the business grows, are you and Sasha having conversations about, hang on a minute, those roles and responsibilities that we divided, are those still the right roles and responsibilities for us to have? How do we start to hand off various different duties yeah. to other people? So we continually check in to see whether we think that the functions that we both uh, are responsible for are the right ones. and. They have it, the way we divided it originally um, works incredibly well, so we're sticking with that. But what we have had to do, we've had to do it in two main phases. The first one was when we first raised funding, we brought on our first team, so we brought on an additional seven people. And that was an important inflection point where we had to sort of hand over responsibility mm -hmm. um, for every function to some other person. And we're going through a similar inflection point now. We've just raised our Series A, we're almost doubling the size of the team, and once again, now it's not just us, but it's our existing team members are also having to um, devolve responsibility to others. And that is absolutely critical, but it's, it's extremely exciting. Uh, for the first time ever, we're going to have a product designer on the team. For the first time ever, we're going to have someone to do analytics, uh, rather than one of us trying to do that as one of the many hats that we wear. Yeah. Last question. Quick one. Earlier on in the podcast there, you mentioned that, you know, you have the mission of a charity. Mission and purpose come up on the podcast time and time again. Yep. But maybe there's a double-edged sword to it um, in that a lot of organizations can expect a huge amount from their employees, especially at an early stage, because, hey, they're, they're going to change the world. They're going to they're do something that, that, that has a huge impact. and Isn't that wonderful? And therefore, they kind of expect 
huge amount of hours from, from someone. Um, I was having a chat with someone who's a head of HR, head of people in a startup saying, you know, a lot of, a lot of people in tech startups aren't aware that they are protected to a certain degree in terms of their rights. Do you think that there's a, there's a double-edged sword element to mission and purpose and that you have to be careful to harness it in the right way? So I can only speak to our own experience, but I have been absolutely amazed at the power of having a mission. Uh, it has enabled us to attract a calibre of candidate that, quite frankly, we would not have been able to um, attract being a, a small little startup. Um, and it has led to a level of alignment and therefore just an incredibly constructive culture because we all know that we're working to the same end. There is no politics. We are all working to solve the problem of food waste. Yep. Um, but you are correct in that there is a challenge that our teams are so intrinsically motivated. You know, every single day they get up and they know that they are saving food, enormous quantities of beautiful food from the bin, and that they are helping feed people. And actually some of those people need that food rather than just want it. Um, so our challenge is, that is actually um, encouraging our team to stop and to take a break and to make sure they lead a balanced life. Uh, and Sasha and I take that responsibility very seriously. Um, and we start with ourselves, because so it is very easy to work too hard and get to burnout. But we have both realised that this is a marathon, not a sprint, and we need to be healthy and happy and well-balanced to get through it. And as a result, we all work completely flexibly. Mm -hmm. So we schedule things that might be loosely called sort of health and well-being into our working day, whether that be running or reading or yoga or walking the dogs or playing with your kids, whatever it is. And all of our team members do that. Um, we have limitless holiday policy, but we do stipulate that everyone has to take a minimum of 20 days to make sure they're well rested. At Christmas time, we say we have all got to switch off um, for a week. And so we are working really hard uh, and in a weekly sort of team meeting, you know, not just team meetings, sorry, one-on-one -on -one meetings, it is the responsibility of the line manager to check that um, their direct report is not working too intensely in a way that is not, not healthy and happy. Look, it's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Um, Thank I you. think the story is, is fascinating. If anyone is interested, if they've got food in their fridge that goes to waste like I do, um, Olio, O-L-I-O, easily found on Android, uh, App Store, I, you know, Apple, etc. Yes, absolutely. Um, and our website is www.olioex.com. Cool. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Right. First of all, I think it's, it's a wonderfully conceived business. Yeah. Are they uh, hiring because limitless holiday? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I know that you, you have uh, decided that this is something that you'd like to talk about. But yep. I, I love that they talk about the power, mm. believe in the power rather, of business to do good. Mm. You know, this idea that you either do good and therefore you're probably a charity yep. or you grow and you scale and therefore you make profit and you're a business and you're bad. But they believe in a third way, you know, profit with purpose. I mean, that... That is an eloquent sort of snappy mantra, profit with purpose. I think it typifies every startup that is a social enterprise come business, right? It really mm. is. Everyone, you know, we speak to, you speak to hundreds of people and we get them on the show and stuff like that. And everyone who's doing good for the society, good for their, you know, their local community and things like that 
it's doing it with purpose, but of course they need to put food on their tables, right? Yeah. It, it reminds me very much of the mantra of Daniel Fogg from Buffalo Grid, who we yes. had on the show. Yes. And he talks about the fact that he didn't like the phrase social yeah. enterprise yeah. because he said ultimately we are a business, we're trying to make yeah, money. They still want to make but money, yeah. We're trying to fix problems at the same time. Absolutely. I mean, we talk about every week, we talk about purpose, and that is a massive thing for us um, and, and, and our community. And for it to be su- summarised in three words like that was just uh, its amazing. Yeah, it's, it's bang on. And I think to have that as your, as your business's mantra and to have almost uh, paved the way for this third path, as she calls it, it's not charity, it's not a business, it is profit with purpose. And I love that. And, you know, it, it's something that I think everyone can relate to because, unfortunately, yeah. I throw away a lot of food. And she talks about that idea of an apple tree in your back garden. Yeah. Um, I My last flat that we rented had an apple tree and we didn't collect it. And they, a lot of those apples did go to waste. Yeah. And, and, unfortunately, you know, someone probably could have turned those into apple crumble and whatever else. And if, if we're honest and look in the mirror, I imagine there's a huge amount of people who would listen to this podcast that go, yeah, probably quite of guilty of that. And yeah. And I love that it's also a vehicle for social change. You know, we we are lucky actually, going back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the show in terms of the street and lots of kids, mm. we have a fairly sociable street that we yep. live on. Yep. We um, we know our neighbours on either side to, to have a proper conversation with yep. um, and even over the road. Uh, but this idea that if someone knocks on your door to take food off you, I'd imagine you're going to not just, here's an exchange, see you later, buy whatever. You're probably going to stop and have a conversation. Well, just on that, like if, if I mean, let's say, for example, I've just cooked a massive casserole that Rosie and I can't finish and I knock on my next door neighbour's door and say, do you want this? Regardless of them knowing me or not, nine times out of ten, they'll look at you as if to be like, what? what Are what, you trying to poison what, me? Yeah, what have you done to it? What yeah. What's wrong with it? Whereas something as simple as having an app sort that out for you, right? That yeah, yeah. platform that connects you. It just makes it makes so much logical sense. I mean, we live in a flat of two. It's just my girlfriend and I. We don't waste that much food. We literally buy what we need. We live like monks, honestly. Buy what we need, and that's it. Um, but I I know from, from from our community that there's there's an Indian family that they throw away a lot of leftover food because typically culturally they cook the huge amounts and then they have it throughout the lunch during the week. That's what they told us anyway. And I've always wanted to be like, well, I've got any leftover. I'll take a portion for my lunch because it always mm. smells so nice. And now maybe I can introduce Aleo to the Aleo? Am I gonna, yeah. Olio. Olio to them and say, look, let's get connected on here. I'll eat all your food. <laughs> yes. Leftover food, leftover food. Slightly self-serving, but fair enough. <laughs> if, if it doesn't go to waste. I'm that, always yeah, self-serving, yeah, Dave. Come on. Um, yeah, no, I, I love this idea. You know, technology often gets this bad rep and it's, you know, oh, everyone's on social media. They're not actually interacting with each other. Here's a vehicle which is yeah. really at its heart uh, forcing people to interact with each other and hopefully building community spirit, which I love. Well, to, this reminded me a lot um, of when we met uh, a chap called Naeem at Unbound who developed that friend request app. It was an app to, to encourage people to meet up, much like this is a platform to get your community closer together. It really is, because you're going to be talking to your neighbours who you get food from all the time. Like I said, you're not going to literally be like, transactional thanks, bye. Or you're going to be like, come in, have a cup of tea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's an amazing community tool. And it's an app. You know, it's got that digital platform behind it that's going to help them to scale up and connect. I mean, I just want to talk about their business model as well, how Mm. they got so many volunteers and ambassadors on board. 
solely because they believed in it. Well, yeah, so this is great. So we often think about, you know, uh, a scalable business being an online business because you can reach so many more people that way. And, and she describes it as, as being global, scalable and high impact. But the scalable piece uh, is, is through empowering others to spread the word in the yeah. local community. 22,000 volunteers who act as ambassadors, food waste heroes. Yeah. Uh, and I love this learning that she, she gives us here around early stage uh, startups. You yeah, know, the mistake yeah. that, that people often in a digital business think that they can grow it from behind a screen. <laughs> and that actually it's very effective and cost effective to employ some old school guerrilla yeah. marketing tactics. And I totally, 100%, one million percent agree with that. Old school marketing does still work. I watched a TV program, the whole series, off the back of an advert on a bus the other day, right? right. That's, it still works for people. It's about, like, for me, when I was listening to this back and thinking about where, is, where do you look most of the time? Well, okay, a lot of the time we're looking at our phones. But if we're not looking at our phones on our commute, we're looking around us. I walk into work every day. I take it all in. This is where I saw an advert for The Informer, a BBC iPlayer program, mm -hmm. and I watched it. Guerrilla, old school guerrilla marketing will still work. And as Tessa says, it's still cheap. Yeah, yeah. One last thing before we move on to the news. We could talk about this all day, couldn't yeah, we? we could, one, yeah, we could, but I'm, I'm going to be, because I'm, I'm aware that we could, we could ramble. Yeah. Um, I've, I've spoken to and heard of a lot of startups where a co-founder will leave a business. It mm. seems to be quite fluid, and we've spoken a lot about yeah. how important it is to validate a co-founder. Yeah. Um, and we often think about getting that process right at the beginning. But I love how she describes it like a marriage. As, yeah. And you I've should approach circled. one as seriously and with as much consideration as you would with a marriage. And one thing about a marriage is, it's not the getting married bit. You then have that consideration. You don't have your life together. No, you've, 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 you've committed and therefore it takes a huge uh, rift to tear yep. that apart. Yep. Yep. And sometimes I feel that when it's not working, co-founders and tech businesses do quite easily mm. um, leave a business and decide it's not working, go their separate ways. Yeah. And I don't know, there's just something about the way that she described it that makes it feel like actually it should be, as long as you complement each other, you should fight for a yeah. little bit more. Yeah, it's um, um, yeah. It's, it's really interesting to look at it that way because, I mean, I'm not married, uh, you are, but it's the most important decision you can make in your life, arguably, you know, committing to your partner for the rest of your life. And, you know, making a startup is like the early days of a relationship. You don't know which way it's going to go. You're going to uncover something new every day. It's exciting. It's exciting. It's the honeymoon period. You know, you're, yeah, yeah. you're nonstop. You're working at it day and night as well. And then you get to the marriage and it's like, right, we're kind of steadying now. You know, I suppose that's a bit different to finding another co-founder, but you still have that joint vision, right? That joint ideology behind you. And that's only going to help your business. Mm. You know, uh, we don't speak to co-founders that, have had a massive fallout of another co-founder and stormed out and the business has gone kaput. But, you know, it must happen. I'm sure it does, like many marriages too. Mm. Look, I, I thought it was a really insightful interview, some great learning there, a fantastic business, um, exploring the third way. Mm. So, Tessa, thank you very much for coming on Tech Talks. It was a real pleasure to have you. It is time for a short advert break, and then we will be back with the news. Hi folks, Dave here. I wanted to let you know that we've teamed up with audible.co.uk and we're offering you a free audiobook. All you have to do is register for a one month free trial to claim your free audiobook, of which there are over 
250,000 to choose from. It's a 30-day free trial. It means you can choose a free audiobook, which is yours to keep, whether or not you decide to cancel that trial period or not. Free piece of advice, if you're going to try an audiobook, go for Bill Bryson's A Walk in the Woods. Anyway, sign up at www.audible.co.uk forward slash tech talks. Back to the show. Welcome back to Tech Talks. It is time for the news. And the news is dominated by the budget, which of course was on Monday. Politics. Politics. Well, maybe we'll touch on a little bit of politics. We tend not to, but maybe we will a little bit. A couple of things to pull out. Obviously, the tech tax. We'll talk about that. Yep. Uh, other one that caught my eye was around the apprenticeship levy pot. So, oh, contribution of small companies to apprenticeship levy to be decreased from 10% to 5%. If anyone's unfamiliar with the levy, um, basically, employees with an annual pay bill of more than £3 million a year would pay 0.5% towards the apprenticeship levy. Yep. Right? Yep. So we're not talking about a huge amount here. Nope. What is really frustrating is that I feel, and this is similar to the tech tax, that this is politics for politics' sake rather than politics for doing good. Um, I think that they're able to turn around small businesses and say, hey, we're helping you out. But actually, those small businesses to grow into scale, especially in technology, are starved of oxygen if they don't have tech talent. Yeah. And the one thing that the apprenticeship levy absolutely yeah. secures is a pathway for people to enter the industry. And that's what we are crying out for. Yeah. And I feel that this is like, a, hey, we're helping out small businesses, but actually horrifically short-sighted and maybe yeah. i've read this wrong but that's my reading of that i mean they're culling culling it by half right the levy and the the levy is not entirely but for small business i i, I don't know how they right. how they classify small businesses but, the, but i mean none of these are small businesses when you've got to pay below over, over three million annually the, the levy has been that that whole initiative is really really doing good work to address the talent shortage, the ridiculously high contractor-driven market and things like that. That is giving employers a chance to get hold of tech talent before they're necessarily embedded in a culture. You can you can push your culture on them, but you earn and learn, right? So yeah. they're part of the business. To cut some of that away, big business, small business, whatever, is bad. Yes. It's, it's, it's not good, you know. One, th one positive thing to come out of this, though, um, this budget, that is, the budget announces the creation of a small business leadership programme. don't know whether you picked up on this, but mm -hmm. uh, delivered in partnership with business schools and leading businesses across England, 2,000 places will be delivered in 2019-2020 with the ambition to train 10,000 people per year by 2025. In addition, 25 million will go into boosting um, business productivity through the Knowledge Transfer Partnership Scheme, placing an additional 200 graduates and academics with relevant skills into firms to translate their research insights into business growth. So that's that's a positive. That that's doesn't sound enough to me, though. I don't think, yeah. it's, I don't think it's enough. Yeah. But, look, if we, got, we, can, okay. we, can, we can slate... We can slate governments and budgets for it's, stuff that we don't think works, yeah. but that is at least that seems positive. It, no, it is. I don't. I don't think that it masks the fact that they're cutting the apprenticeship levy, and that's that's a terrible idea. But that is a positive thing. I mean, I, I'm looking at the numbers here, and look, 
you know this as well as anyone, Dave, I'm not a numbers guy. £25 million is going to the Knowledge Transfer Partnership Scheme. Now, they're also throwing another £115 million to fund the digital catapult. Great. Regional digital disruptors kind of thing. But it goes on to say, this is a massive surprise because digital catapult, when they were heavily criticised in a BEIS commissioned by Ernst & Young. So this company, Ernst & Young, the, the auditors have seen that this isn't working. So they're chucking £115 million at it to try and make it work. Mm. Which seems like a massive risk from a you know, and arguably and not a digital savvy government anyway. Yes. But only 25 million is going to go to, I mean, I, again, I'm not a numbers man, but that seems quite far, quite a lot of money to throw at a company that Ernst & Young said, look, these guys aren't doing well enough. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. Um, should we have a quick chat about the tech tax? Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, because again... It's the headline grabber. It's, it's a good thing, but again, is it enough? Well... Is it done with the right with the right purposes in mind? I mean, who's he? Yeah, is he taxing it for good or is he taxing it for you know the Tory away day next year? So um, <laughs> you hate it when I get a bit like this, you? I try and remain impartial. I don't. <laughs> uh, so the UK has been leading attempts to deliver international corporate tax uh, reform from the digital age. Quote Phil Hammond, a new global <laughs> spreadsheet. Phil is better known as. Ah, right? look, hang on. Uh, a new Not my words. A new global agreement is the best long-term solution, but progress is painfully slow. We simply cannot talk forever, so we are introducing a UK digital services tax. Again, if good on him. Yeah, good on him. If anyone's not sure what this is, the tax will apply to UK revenues above 25 million per year uh, allowance on groups generating over 500 million pounds per year in global profits. So it, it is specifically designed mm. not to target the yep. emerging tech yep. scene yep. And, and businesses that are growing in the UK on that regard. It is, it is, it's the big boys. It is aimed at the big boys. Is it really enough? There's been some suggestion that it's going to amount to about 30 million quid. Yeah. Right? Um, which seems, this seems like a complicated and slightly out there announcement if it's mm. not really going to generate much in terms of the public coffers. They're doing it because people are angry, and I understand why they're angry. You look at the likes of Amazon and Facebook and so on, and the amount of money that they yeah, make, yeah, and yeah. you wonder, why are they not paying more? Yeah, yeah. They well, because, make money in this country. Because people are afraid to lose them. They'll go to Switzerland or whatever and they'll be fine. It makes no difference to them where they're based because they'll find the talent no matter where they are in the world. They'll hire the talent. But if they're taxed less in Zurich as they are in England, yeah. it's a no-brainer. Hey, look, Phil Hammond. Uh, Fair actually, play for like going above and beyond to try it, yeah? Well, and also... Yeah. also um, I, you know, he's often made a, a few jokes that are actually pretty good. He also, with a sense of, of, of irony, I imagine, said that he's already looking forward to his call from Nick Clegg, who, of course, <laughs> is now Facebook's head of global policy and yeah. communications. And as, when he was in, in government, was very vocal in saying that the public are rightly angry, angered by, that, by the wealthy elite um, who pay an army of accountants to avoid easy, tax. Easy, Nicky, easy, Nicky. So he's in an interesting spot Wait, right you're now. telling me Nick Clegg went back on his word again? That doesn't sound like him. Well, I'm glad that you're not just taking aim at the Tories here. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> no, can I... Well, on that, Tom Watson, deputy leader... Uh, is he deputy <clears throat> leader? Yeah. Now, he's a, he's a funny <coughs> figure, isn't he, Tom Watson? But his point is, um, these tech giants do need to pay more in tax, but the measure announced is a pittance for these massive international companies. Under the Tories, the percentage of tax paid by the big five tech, company, tech companies has halved since 2014. 
The new tax isn't even set to be implemented until 2020, at which time tech giants will start to enjoy a 2% cut in their corporation tax. Yeah, look, I, I do wonder if, you know, this is the last budget before Brexit. It's yep. possibly the last budget before a general election, if that goes badly wrong. Um, There's no way if a general election happens, Hammond will still be Chancellor anymore. This is... I, I just fear that... Um, there's an element of let's roll this out because it'll play well with the public rather than actually regulate tech. Let's give some people some great headlines to digest before a general election next year. And wherever you sit on the political spectrum, the fact that it then turned into a piece of political point scoring, yep. to me suggested yep. that actually this had as much to do with that as anything else. The fact that um, Phil Hammond was talking about, um, you know, Labour, Labour are tough talk. Um, <laughs> but we're actually doing something to tackle tax avoidance. Yeah. Um, let's not forget that the Conservatives have been in power since 2010. Mm. The iPhone has only been around since 2007. Mm. 2010 to 2018 in the world of technology is like... Uh, the whole industrial revolution. Well, it's, Essentially like, it's, like, it's like saying, hey, hey, Labour, why didn't you... Why, why weren't you kind of sorting out Pangaea? It's like different <laughs> geological epochs. <laughs> it's 25. It's eight years, but in terms of technology, a huge amount has changed. We've In eight years, we've probably had about six different iPhones, a hundred different iOS well, updates. more than that. Yeah. more than that. It's, it, that is, I mean, it's a good, again, it's a very smart point that he makes. Is because it 16 they iPhones, are doing more. 16 iPhones. Is it? Oh, okay. Wow, that's a lot. Is it? I don't know, but it's still it's still a lot. It's not. Oh, sorry, no, it's not two a year. It's it's two every other year. I really, sorry. yeah, that's big pardon. Yeah, I really like the point. I'm struggling to see it now, but it was like, oh, here, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was in the UKTN article. Right. AI has clearly caught the government's eye. With up to fifty million pounds being earmarked for new Turing AI fellowships. Amazing. Why has AI caught the government's eye, Dave? Because it's an, you know it, arms race. Again, reactive. I'm well, glad no, they're no, doing it. No, 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 no. Hey, let me finish. Okay. I'm glad they're doing it. Right? I'm really glad they're doing it. Why? I, I think, I, no, I, I kind of understand that each country at the minute is trying to position itself as a leader in a certain field. And we're going to go for AI. Well, no, why, why, why not? not? Yeah, no, no, no. Well, fucking good luck with that with Brexit coming then and I getting the talent over. If, if I'm right in thinking, I might have this slightly wrong, but France in particular has pushed blockchain, I think. Blockchain. Oh, is it But cer certain countries have picked kind of a particular emerging tech no, and I'm wanted to be the hub for it. And we, we do, as a country, need to go, you know what, this is where we have expertise if you want to be involved in that. I mean, one of our strengths is that actually we're a melting pot of all these techs. Yeah. But I, I do get that. Yeah. Um, last point, because... We're we danger, we we're said we weren't going to ramble. Yeah, last point. <laughs> uh, and this is taken from UK, the UKTN article. So the, dig, the um, digital services tax, um, one unintended consequence of this could see the cost of these taxes being passed on to consumers and businesses. For example, through increased costs of UK SMEs advertising on the platforms. And that's a fair point. And it's, you know it's a fair point because... Phil Hammond himself said that he made it clear that the new tax would not be an online sales tax and would not, you know, which would fall, or not fall rather, on consumers of goods. But it's not their intention. Ah. And that's telling. Good. Thank heaven for that. Anyway, uh, very interesting week in tech. We hope you've enjoyed your Halloween. On Monday, we're returning with a mashup from the CIO water cooler IT Northern leaders. Uh, and then... Um, it's going to be a very exciting week. The podcast is all over the show. I'm in Portugal, in mm. Lisbon. 
producer rider is going to Wired Live. Mm. Where am I going to be? Sat behind my desk. Oh, well, you're, you're the rock, Jack. Yeah, sorry, you're the there's rock. a rock. <laughs>